0: Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with y'all as we are on our third week of our vision series here at Hope Chapel. Uh, Each year we take a considerable amount of teaching and preaching time to go through our vision. And the reason we do that is to to recenter us in our hearts on the things that God has laid on the leadership of Hope Chapel to be um, who he has called us to be. And so the heart of this vision is to be a gospel community for the flourishing of the city through spiritual, cultural, and social renewal. So the past two weeks, Todd has taken the first chapter and a half of Ephesians and and has shown how they have directly given us theological and practical meaning to that vision. This week, I'm going to take just a few verses that we just read uh, and show how Christ has made us as Christians, those who profess faith in Him, has made us into a new creation— and this, this new creation is foundational to who we are and as we move into the world and the city for its flourishing. So I had this moment uh, in 2016, which is um, about four, three or four months after I moved here. I was sitting in my living room and I was watching some trash show. And um, I'm sitting on our ottoman, not even on the couch. And I've got uh, a hydrangea in one hand. ...and a thorn remover in the other... ...and I'm slowly picking out hydrangeas from a box... ...and pulling the thorns off them and putting them into water... ...cutting the stems off, putting them in... ...and I had this like, uh, it was kind of like an epiphany... ...but more just kind of like a moment of like... ...man, uh, this was never in my life plan... ...this is never something that I expected to be doing... uh, ...in my late 20s, early 30s... ...is playing essentially with flowers... Um As most of you know, my wife is a florist. She's a a wedding and events florist and um, though she is the brains mastermind artist all the things It's you know, I like to think of it a little bit as a family business, you know, so I try to help out as much as I can And so, um I was helping her and it's not that I was upset that I was doing this with the hydrangeas I just wasn't I had never been something that I expected but if you think about, uh or if you've ever talked to Andrea about flowers, she doesn't just look at her job as arranging flowers to make something beautiful for someone's important day, for their wedding day. It's much more than that for her. Whenever Andrea meets with brides, she says this. She says, every single flower that I order, even that hydrangea that I was holding and taking the, stems off, the thorns off of, She says every single one has an incredible purpose. She says the entire life of this flower, in fact, the whole reason for its existence is to one day end up being in an arrangement at your wedding. It has a grand purpose. So even when it was a seed, when it was growing at a farm, when it was cut by the worker, when it was sent to the wholesaler or boxed up by the local grower, the entire life purpose of each individual flower that she holds was to make something beautiful in an arrangement or a bouquet, a centerpiece or an installation. And, you know, coming from a far more passionate and eloquent Andrea, the brides are often inspired And they typically book her, right? Um, But I love this picture. And I think most artists feel this way, right? Every picture taken by a photographer, every canvas and brush used in a painting, every word written is purposeful to an artist. None of it's a waste. All of it matters because in true art, all that goes into making it is purposeful. In verse 10... Paul calls us God's workmanship. The word that he uses for workmanship is poema. It literally means something made. It's the root word for where we get poem and poetry from. And what Paul is saying is that we are God's great poem, we are his greatest work of art. Our value is such that God looks at those of us who profess faith in him and he says, You are my masterpiece. So think about it this way. Jesus didn't just die on the cross to save us, though he did. He didn't just die on the cross to show us how much he loves us, though he does. He he died on the cross so that he can make us into something new. Something beautiful. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a ticket out of hell. It was a promise to make us new, not just for now, but all of eternity. He said, I'm going to turn you into something magnificent. The great artist himself is making us his art. He's the great potter, as it says in other parts of scripture, and we are the clay. And he calls me and he calls you his masterpiece, his poema. Henry Morris, a theologian and creationist, puts it this way. He says, God has written two poetic masterpieces. One in the physical creation and one in the lives of men and women redeemed And saved by his grace. And both of these give eloquent testimony to the eternal power and Godhead of the creator-redeemer. So it's two great divine poems. The created world and the recreated redeemed man and woman in that world. As God's master creations, we should never be ashamed to let others see his workmanship. He says, let your light shine before men. In such a way, they see your good works. Just as every single one of Andrea's flowers has a great purpose, a purpose to be made into something beautiful, to be made something new, to be taken into a masterpiece, so too are we the same in the hands of God. He has made us and then remade us into something beautiful. But here's the kicker, and here's what I I really want to stress home to us today. We weren't made just to be made beautiful, but to make beauty. We're not just made to be God's new creation, but to embody all that means in the world. We weren't just made to be a part of God's kingdom, but to be about his kingdom in the world. And this is what we're going to talk about today. He's made us into something new, a new creation, but, but also to be about that new creation in the world. To embody it, to exemplify it. But we don't always live this way, right? Often we lead with shame rather than our new nature. And it tells us that we're unlovable. Or uh, our constant struggle with sin tells us that we're not good enough to be God's masterpiece. Our anxiety keeps us from the confidence we have as God's new creation. Or often tell me if this rings true for you because it it does for me. We try and try and we work and we work. We work. And we strive and we strive to become better or to be whatever we think God's new creation or masterpiece is supposed to be or worthy of being that. And it never feels like enough. And we feel like we fail. But here's what's encouraging. Paul shows us that this new nature is ours. It's been given to us. We don't have to strive for it, we don't have to work for it, we don't deserve it, and yet it's ours. Salvation is in the Lord. Our new nature is not something we strive for because it's a lived-in reality for us as God's people. It's not something we strive for, it's a lived-in reality. And there's a beautiful interplay between the grace of God and the good work of His people that we see in these verses. And we're going to break them down today in the context of this new nature Uh, in christ and that he applies to us so today we're going to see uh, two things grace is the foundation of this new nature and good works are the outworking of that new nature very simple grace is the foundation good works is the outworking so grace paul says this in 8 9 for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's the gift of god not a result of works so that no man can boast This is one of uh, perhaps the most famous verses used for describing what our faith is in Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. Um, And so I don't want us to lose anything with its familiarity. So let's break it down. I I remember growing up in the church and uh, because uh, maybe the church I grew up um, tended to be more legalistic. uh, I never really had a good understanding of grace. I mean, we were in church every Sunday, we had a youth group, our family was very committed to the faith, but I remember asking my brother when I was like in high school, what exactly is grace? And one of the best ways I've heard it described, um, and honestly that I've used from the pulpit is unmerited favor, right? Have y'all heard that? Grace is unmerited favor. It's the idea that we don't deserve God's favor because of our sin and imperfection, and yet he still gives it to us. It's unmerited And I don't think that's a wrong definition, but I think it's incomplete. To to really understand what Paul is getting at here, we have to go back to verse 3, which Todd preached on last week. On verse 3, Paul talks about who we are outside of Christ. He says that we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. What this means is that because of the sin we willfully committed... We are outside of Christ, children of wrath. We are fundamentally opposed to Christ in his work. Hear that. We are fundamentally opposed to him. And because of that, we are deserving of his wrath. So if this is the case, as Paul lays it out very clearly, unmerited favor is too neutral of a phrase for the, the, the grace in the description between God and humanity. Because... Humanity has fallen so far, there's no getting up from it. So grace is something more than that, actually. The immensity of favor that God bestows on his people is so much more than just unmerited favor. It's a rescuing and a saving of a people with no hope. A people who used to be, by nature, children of wrath, deserving wrath. Grace is God's love poured out on a people who are condemned by our own choices with no hope of salvation. So a better definition than unmerited favor in the context of what Paul is preaching here is maybe God's favor despite our demerit, right? It's not just unmerited. We we willfully chose. So it's our demerit, God's favor despite human demerit. And with this understanding of our sinfulness and and the salvation of Christ, it changes things. And it changes the way we move in the world. This is why Paul says it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Because there's no way outside of Christ that we could be saved. So we can never strive hard enough, work hard enough, or believe hard enough to escape the situation that we got ourselves in. And if we could, even just a little bit, then we would have room to boast. We'd be able to say, look what I've done, even just a little bit. But the good news of the gospel is that it wholly, completely, and utterly rests on Jesus Christ and not on us. And good Lord, thank Him that it does, right? Only Him could provide, only Jesus could provide a sacrifice that was perfect, unblemished, and completely without sin to satisfy the wrath of God. And only Jesus Christ, the Son of God Himself, could have the power to defeat sin and death. This is why grace is such good news, because there's only one person in the entire history of the world who didn't deserve the wrath of God, and that's the one who took it on his back. And there's only one person in the entire history of the world who could have beaten sin and death, and he's the one that did it. Grace is the foundation of our new nature. It reminds us of our humanity, our lack of being able to bring anything to the table. It reminds us to be humble and light of our deep need. Uh, And one of the primary aspects of our vision here at Hope Chapel is spiritual renewal. The way we believe Hope Chapel as a body is renewed spiritually is to be reminded of that grace that we have in Christ Jesus despite our brokenness. So there's a few ways I want to apply that to us this morning. They're this, I want uh, want us to be able to accept grace for ourselves, be gracious towards one another, and have grace for the world, all by means of application. So accepting grace for yourself. Earlier and just now, um, I spoke strongly about the nature of grace and God's wrath. It's not always fun talking about that stuff, right? We don't love to hear it. And I don't say those things to shame you. But I say them to remind you just how glorious and beautiful and powerful the grace of Jesus Christ is. And it's yours. There are many of you here this morning, and I, I feel like I am the captain of the boat, that move into the world um, primarily with shame. I feel like you don't do enough for Christ, that you aren't a good enough Christian, That you try and strive to be holy and God's kingdom worker and you fail. You feel unworthy and unlovable and not enough. That's the voice that's consistently in my head. But God's grace reminds us of something different. That Christ died for you so that you don't have to die for him. Right? Christ died so that you don't have to. So quit killing yourself trying to be good enough for him. When God looks at you, do you know what he sees? He sees the fullness of Christ over you and in you and through you. The righteousness of Christ covers you completely, making you into a new creation. Often when we talk about the righteousness of Christ covering us, it's almost as if we're saying God doesn't see us. But that's not true. The righteousness of Christ is so covering of us that it actually, he sees how we were meant to be before sin ever entered the picture. That is how good the nature of Christ's salvation and grace over us is. The righteousness of Christ covers you completely, making you into God's poema. So have grace for yourself. Have grace for yourself in your sin issues. Have grace for yourself in your shortcomings. Have grace for yourself in your brokenness, in your stress, in your anxiety. Because Christ died so that you could be made new. Move into the world covered by grace and not shame. But it's not just grace for ourselves, right? It's also for one another. What's that old adage, forgiven people forgive people, hurt people hurt people, right? It's the idea that uh, people that have experienced forgiveness, true forgiveness, are able to forgive. People that have been truly hurt tend to hurt other people. Loved people love people. The same is true about grace. People that have experienced true grace are gracious towards one another. One of the ways the world will know that we are different, that we are indeed God's masterpiece, is how we move into the world with grace for one another. I think the first way to do this is to begin believing the best about our fellow brothers and sisters. It's so easy in our polarized society to move towards one another with distrust, right? If you even have an inkling that the person across the table from you thinks differently about something, politically, ideologically, socially, it's so easy to distrust them, to not think the best of them. Church, this is not how we're called to live. We're all saved in the same way, right? We are all in the same boat, children of wrath. Saved, undeserving, without anything to boast in. If that is true, then the way we move in the world, then we can believe the best about one another and hope for the best in one another. We can treat one another with dignity and respect even if we believe different things or if we have different political, social, or ideological views. This is how the church becomes one. And it's risky, right? Because if you believe the best about someone and it's not true, then you can get hurt. Right, And that's hard and that's painful, but the risk is worth it. It's worth it for the church to be who the church is supposed to be, to be God's hand and feet, to show a different way, to move towards one another in grace. So accepting for ourselves, move towards uh, to one another and finally the world. Part of the new creation is that God has made us into something different, something beautiful, right? And if we really live in that reality, the world will want what we have. They'll be drawn to us. And, and not always, right? The Bible's clear that we'll be rejected for the sake of our beliefs and our, even our new nature. So it's not always the case. But I believe that our biggest apologetic can be the way that we move in the world by showing them a different way of life. And we'll talk more about this in a second, but before I get there, how do you view the world, culture, society? Do you only look at it with judgment and condemnation? Where's the common grace for the world, right? There's a fine balance here. There's a tension that's not easy. It's gray sometimes. We're often called, uh, we're supposed to call out society And culture at large for its brokenness and sin. Yes, that is part of our vocation. But we're also called to winsomely bring the gospel throughout all of God's good creation. And we can't do that if our posture towards the world is only condemnation and judgment. There has to be a balance. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. We never sacrifice truth for grace. I actually mean the contrary. In a lot of ways, grace is believing the truth, right? It's accepting the truth about ourselves... About one another and the world. That we are helpless to save ourselves. And that Christ died so that we can be remade. But so can one another and so can the world. Truth and truth telling is an integral part of grace. So with that in mind, I want to end this point with this tweet from Sam Alberry from this week. John 1.14 says this. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth come together in Christ. They are not tension. They do not need to be balanced. You cannot have one without having both. So if you think you have one without the other, you have neither. So if your thing, your thing is kindness and grace, but you never stand for hard truths, it's not biblical grace you embody, but something counterfeit. And if your thing is truth, but you lack grace and kindness, it's not biblical truth you're driven by but a love of being right. Our calling as Christians for ourselves to one another and to the world is to move in grace and truth, and in doing so, embodying our new nature in Christ. And it brings us to our second point, that good works are the outworking of our new nature. So verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, as we mentioned earlier, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as we begin to walk through this last verse and the second point, I think it's important that we delineate something really, really important. Paul is not putting grace and works at odds with one another here. He's not saying grace good works bad. He's not even saying works good, grace better. No, he's talking about two separate things. In our first point, we're reminded that we're saved by grace through faith, that salvation rests only in Christ Jesus. It's a gift to us. We can do nothing to achieve it or attain it ourselves. We can't work to be saved. But he very purposely talks about good works immediately after because they're integral to the gospel. They're not integral to our salvation, which resides in the Lord, but they're integral to our working and moving into the world. We are saved for a purpose is what Paul is saying. We are saved to do kingdom work in the world. Our salvation is not just a ticket out of hell, as I said. We are his workmanship, his divine poetry, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He says it plainly. The point of our being created, being made into something beautiful, is to do his work in the world. So this is not a salvation question, it's an outworking question. There's no dichotomy here. Throughout scripture, salvation and election is often talked about as something that God has decided before the foundation of the world. But what's amazing about this verse is that Paul is implying that the good works of God's kingdom were also prepared before we were even created. They were created beforehand, he says. This implication and nuance was that God knew how each of you and your individual personalities, passions, and giftings were going to bring about his kingdom before you were even created. And he prepared you and the world for you to do them. Your salvation, your individual salvation has immense purpose to the kingdom of God in the world. Our salvation does not end with saying a prayer and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. It begins there. It is assured through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it is worked out daily in our lives. It's a part of our gospel calling and kingdom work in the world, and this means a few things for us. I uh, I listened to a um, a podcast just yesterday with Ethan Hawke. That guy's fascinating. He's the actor um, from the Before Sunrise and Sunset movies. He was in Boyhood. Um, He's venerated. He's he's a method actor. He's known for his indie films, his dedication to his craft. But recently, uh, all the news went nuts because this indie actor that doesn't do big picture budget movies was announced that he was going to do a Marvel movie with Oscar Isaac. And I was like, "What what is Ethan Hawke doing, doing a Marvel movie? Why would he sell out? Right? That's it. Why would he sell out? So the host essentially asked him this question. And man, his answer was so good. This is what he said. You have to speak to your time. You can't pretend you don't live in the time period that you live in. You have to make your time period better. So what he was saying is, the dominant movie genre of our time are these superhero movies. And he may not like it, it just is what it is. And you can still tell good stories and make good art, even if you have to do it within a superhero movie. And he went back and he said, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid has some comedic elements and it's a western, but really it's a drama. Spoiler alert, they die at the end. Those actors were not just doing a western, shoot em up. It was a drama And that's what he's saying. You have to take the vehicle that you're given and you have to speak to your time. You can't pretend you don't live in a time you don't live in. Same is true of us. We can't pretend that we don't live in the time that we live in. And as God's kingdom workers, we have to work to make it better. Too long have we as Christians ignored The time that we live in. Too long we've refused to to answer that calling. To enter the world equipped with the full armor of God. To bring about his goodness, grace and truth to it. This is our vision series at Hope Chapel. And two of the three core tenets I mentioned spiritual renewal. uh, Is to be about cultural and social renewal. This means we have to engage with what our world looks like culturally and socially today. We can't not. We have to understand what the culture at large thinks so that we can engage them and show them a better way, a kingdom way. We have to understand the plight and brokenness of our society so that we can know where we need to enter into those spaces with God's kingdom. We have to speak to our time. The way we make it better is to bring and promote that kingdom in every sphere, every square inch that Christ claims as his. So we we live in a time, this is just true, we live in a time where people put their political ideology over their spiritual and religious ideology. How are we going to show a better way? We can either bemoan it or show them that the gospel is a better way. We live in a time where there is incredible social, racial, and sexual unrest. Right? And as Christians, we can refuse to engage with those conversations in any kind of nuanced way. Or we can do the work of the gospel, which is entering into those spaces... Looking at them from every angle and saying, this is what the Bible says, this is what the kingdom says about them. We can listen and we can learn and we can walk a minute or two in someone else's shoes and then bring the gospel of the kingdom to those places because it truly is better. Justice issues are at the forefront of our society. So we can either choose to echo what culture says about justice or we can engage with what the Bible says justice is and we can speak to it. We have to do this going forward or we're going to miss out on our calling. Good work for the kingdom of God is not optional. It's integral to our new humanity who Christ has made us to be as his new creation. When we embrace that humanity, the new humanity, the new creation, we will show the world what humanity was always meant to be before the mark of sin entered us and entered the world. And we can't be that if we refuse to engage with the time that we're in. So here's my encouragement for you. Your salvation has great purpose for the kingdom of God. And we live in a very, uh, in a lot of ways, difficult time and a very easy time at the same time. We can pick up our cross and enter into this world for the goodness, grace, truth, and kingdom of God and we should and I believe as Hope Chapel we're uniquely positioned to do that and bring about great flourishing here in the city and in the world all for the sake of the glory of Jesus um, not to brag but it, Andre really makes some of the most beautiful arrangements I've ever seen I'm biased okay I know um and they really do affect people the amount of times that she has told me the brides that say you made my day it was hard and you made it better or it was a disaster but your flowers were perfect or it was the best day of my life and your flowers were a big part of it that is her ministry and each of you whether you're an artist or not have a ministry too Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a lawyer, whether you are a salesperson, whether you're a teacher, whatever the Lord has put you in this great earth, your ministry is to bring about the kingdom of his goodness and of his grace and to make beauty. Because when we make beautiful things in the name of Christ, they see how beautiful he is. So church, let's do that together. As we move into the world. Amen.